Joe, let's jump right into it. What do you say? Let's do it. Awesome. Man, thanks for coming back to the show. It is so awesome to have you back. Thanks for having me. I really, really appreciate it. After some uh, troubleshooting, we're here. We're ready. Uh, <laughs> well done. It's, and uh, we're, we're recording on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Um, and so rather than ask, how's your day going? I want to ask you, where were you on September 11th, 2001? The ubiquitous question. Um, yeah, man, I was uh, working for a company in uh, Costa Mesa, California, and I pretty much just shown up to work. Um, uh, and uh, so what was it, nine o'clock around that? Uh, so early morning, I mean, it, it had already happened. And somebody said, uh, did you see that? Did you hear the news? And I was like, no, I, I was listening to music on the way in. What happened? And uh, uh, my buddy just said like a plane hit the World Trade Center. And I thought, huh, the heck, that's crazy. And off to work I went. Um, because I didn't know what that meant. I did, you know what I mean? Like none of us mm -hmm. really knew what that, what do you mean? Like what plane hit it? Must've been like a little plane or something. That sounds terrible. That sounds crazy. Like an accident, right? That's the first thing you thought was like, Who it knows? Was yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But you know, I don't know that I would, I don't know that they knew. It, it seems like they didn't because they would have been like, no, no, it wasn't a, it wasn't a plane, dude. It was like a jet airliner. Mm -hmm. Oh, that would be a different story altogether. So I got to, uh, I was doing my day and I didn't have any customers. I was doing pest control back then. So I was just doing my regular route and most all people were at work and stuff like that. Uh, and, uh, I wasn't running into anybody because most of my route were people like in, in Tustin area, uh, were, you know, were professionals They were off to work and the houses were always just empty. And then, uh, uh, a guy came home while I was doing his, uh, his service and stuff like that. And I was like, Hey, I forget his name, Mr. Whatever. It's been a while. And he's like, yeah, I can't believe you're at work. I'm like, what, what do you mean? He's like, Oh dude, like the world is like exploding right now. Like wow. plane hit the world trade center, but he was, I was like, Oh yeah, my buddy at work told me about that. And he's like, no, he did. Like, do you understand the extent? Like, and so all that information, I wasn't listening to the news or anything. That was really weird because I was very much kind of like getting into politics at that point. I wasn't like really I wasn't really situated with any kind of political leaning, but I was kind of getting introduced mainly through my brother through, uh, to political ideas. So it wasn't really like talk radio, Hannity, Limbaugh yet. Um, but uh, so I didn't have the news on. I was just listening to like music or whatever. Well, right. Uh, because weren't you just in your early 20s? Barely 20. Yeah, man. Yeah, exactly. 25, um, 25 mm -hmm. years old. So, oh, yeah, because we're, uh, we're just about the same age, almost exactly. Mm -hmm. What year were you born again? 76. 76. Yeah. You're just one, maybe by a couple months. <laughs> Younger or older? Well, I was born in 75, but in December, oh, okay. two weeks yeah. shy of 76. So that's why we were all in the same class because yeah, I didn't sense. turn five soon enough. <laughs> but anyway, <Gosh>. so, <laughs> so you, so you literally are just like going along your day, like do, do, do. Uh -huh. And then this guy is like, no, like, this is literally the biggest thing that's happening in the world right now. And you just don't have that kind of perception at 25 in, in the world that you were living in. No, but, but that's very interesting because, um, so I remember calling my boss, like I, I like made my way to a payphone and I called my boss and I was like, you know, Hey, like what's going on? He's like, I know it's crazy. I'm like, well, are we, are we still working? Like, are we, how do we know we're like, you know, how do we know we're not like a target? I'm looking at working in downtown Orange County, you know, and it's like, well, who knows where the targets are? Remember that? Like, it was like, there was like this 
right. you know, fear in like major cities of like, well, what's happening next? Who knows? Well, because what's happening next? if that could happen in New York City, of course, then and of then course, the why wouldn't it happen like, in every city? Right. Like yeah. not to diminish the fact that you guys were not New York City, but because I was there and, and my listeners are listening to this after I've put out my 9-11 sort of memoir. <laughs> right. um, so this is coming after that, but um, that is like, it's so hard to comprehend what the rest of the world must've been feeling. And I'm sure it's no lack of panic that we were feeling in New York city in it happening because it happened for us. So yeah. everyone else in the country was like, is it going to happen? to us. Like that's a totally different way of um, living. So for us, we didn't have any planes flying overhead. Um, Very true. Did you guys have planes fly overhead or like what oh, was yeah, the, all the time? John Wayne airport was literally right there. I mean, John so, Wayne so, so flights right didn't there. stop. So, so you still probably had, I mean, what was oh, that? No, like? I don't know about that. I don't, I don't want to say the flights didn't stop. I, I'm not saying that like, I still saw airplanes going and stuff like that. I'm just saying it was definitely like, it was definitely like a major hub. There would be planes flying right. over all over time. But I, I, that's interesting. I don't have any recollection of like, hey, did the plane stop or anything like that? Well, I don't because it was like chilling that. to have no planes in New York City. Like it, it was, it I was, bet. yeah, it was really. So um, for the listeners who are listening in other countries, because we are being listened to in, in many, many, many countries, which is pretty awesome. That's right. Um, got, a, got a few new countries that were added um, in the last uh, couple weeks. So um, thank you, all my international listeners. But for those who may not know, Joe, can you explain a little bit about where Orange County is in relation to one of the biggest cities in the United States? Um, Orange County is a part of like the larger uh, Southern California. I mean, we're all kind of like in the shadow of Los Angeles. Um, it's, I mean, Orange County's, so it's basically just a little bit to the South. Uh, what is it? Southeast. Um, but it's basically in the shadow of Los Angeles. So it's part of this massive metropolitan area, um, of, of basically great. I just want to call it greater Los Angeles. Um, I mean, it's, it's, the the divide is imperceptible it's all houses it's the it's same all, interstate like when you're driving yeah. like basically from the inland empire to like mm -hmm. tijuana it's the same like mm -hmm. there's there's not a lot of space that isn't developed with with humanity and things like that so right. joe i i wanted to um i wanted to ask you about 911 because there's a lot of talk especially and like I said, we're recording this on 9-11. So there's been a lot of talk about the 20-year anniversary this whole week on NPR and Good Morning America and all the all the news stations. And one of the things that came out was that there are obviously a whole bunch of students in school right now in K-12 that um, have not were not alive during 9-11. And for something that is so palpable, 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 man, I should not even sure, have tried palatable. to use that word, palatable. <laughs> um, for, for us and our generation and those above us, and maybe even a few millennials below us, um, 
Gen Z have no understanding and, and Generation Alpha have no comprehension of the, the magnitude. One of the students I heard um, on TV said, I didn't know how many people died. I didn't realize how many people died. And um, and so the question is, as because, by the way, for my listeners, you might you might remember Joe from um, season one. And um, and I'll put a link to that conversation because it's it's an absolute fantastic one. Um, Joe's one of my history pals that I have come on and I'm super stoked to have you back. But the question, Joe, as a historian, um, does it surprise you that 9-11 is not mandatory to be covered in the United States um, or is that a ridiculous thing to make mandatory? Oh, um, boy, that is, I mean, that's, that's the curveball. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> I guess, I guess I'd say like, well, in what, in what way, you know, would we be saying like mad mandated, like, uh, like it should be part of like the, uh, core curriculum for like, uh, you know, maybe junior high or high school studies, uh, uh you know, it should right. be introduced in like the, the secondary school level. So when you say like, is it absurd that it's not versus, well, it, that's, a, I mean, um, where to start? I would say that I'm a big proponent of allowing educators the right to decide their own curriculum. It's uh, and, and and not even especially, but I'm going to say because I'm you know the amateur historian that I am or whatever. Um, I'm very fond of there not being like a core curriculum when it comes to history because taking away my ability as an educator, as a history uh, educator, social sciences, political science, whatever that whole kind of like spectrum. Um, and just telling me like, okay, so here's the textbook, you know, here's the way you teach it. Uh, here's the, here's the teacher's key to, to, you know, for all the right answers. Um, I, I hope education that never comes to that. Uh, I don't even want, uh, you know, mathematics to come to that. I think every teacher should have their own right to teach in whatever way they see possible uh, not possible, but whatever way they, they see the mo- most beneficial for the student. We are entrusting them as the stewards of information you know, kind of thing. So I'm a very big proponent of allowing teachers whatever they want. It's not mandated. That's fine. It's not, it's not part of the curriculum. Um, that's fine because most teachers are not going to glide over that. I don't think, I don't think you can get to like the modern, you know, historical period and not mention uh, the U S involvement and the U S presence in the middle East. And that's automatically going to lead you. I mean, it's just perfectly dovetailed to leading up to, 9-11 you know what I mean so it's like yeah but if you're gonna skip that I don't know how you would and and plus it's I, I can to, tell you how you would being a former uh high school French teacher I can tell you exactly how go ahead. um so you have textbooks that are more than a decade old I and don't support you, that and you have standardized testing that covers that that specific time frame that the textbooks are in so usually those those exams are old and they're really only looking at, um, you know, specific information. I mean, think about how much, so I remember living in Europe and having friends, you know, from, from England and France and, and them being like, um, God, you guys just don't learn anything about anyone else's history, do you? And I was like, well, that's not true. I said, but I can't believe how much history, you know, about ours, compare in comparison. Like, I don't, I don't know a lot of modern, um, world history classes, right? Like 
but it seems like there's a lot more modern world history taught in other countries. And so what happens is we get kind of stuck in this like old history, I think, because I'm going to be honest with you, Joe, I don't remember learning much about the Vietnam War. Uh, well, and for us, that was only, you know, 20 to 30 years later, 25 years later. I guess I, I guess I don't remember much of a. I guess I don't remember much of my high school experience at all, but, but okay. So to, <laughs> was, to say once it about, was so lame that you just blocked it out. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> uh, it was Yucca Valley after definitely all. Definitely <laughs> elements. Um, but, 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 so, but here's the thing. Um, just going back to the idea of like, well, the, the out-of-date textbooks. Okay. That's fine. But let's, first of all, let's get back to the idea of like a textbook. Okay. So let's say we have the 2021 uh, Rand McNally shiniest brand newest uh textbook out there and i'm a and i'm a history teacher uh and for like an 11th grade or whatever right uh class uh i want to use that history i want to use that textbook as little as possible i'm going to use that textbook as the very most i would want to use that thing as a supplement to my class again i want to produce my syllabus under the rubric that i want to teach the students because I am the professional in that scenario. I've been hired. I've been entrusted to teach these students. And it's not just a facilitator of already prepackaged information. As soon as we get to that, my worry is that you would see a lot less good education going down the road of, of uh, standardization. I think it's been shown uh, I'm not a proponent of it because I think it's been shown to kill critical thinking, kill reason, analysis. I want kids reading a book and then being able to contextualize and pull the meaning out of and then problematize what they found in the book. So I'm not going to stray away from anything. I, you know what I mean? It's like I, I would, I would right, feel right. like I was really doing a disservice to my students by skipping over that and just to like maybe say that like, it might be linked to some like ideological reason of like, well, we're just not going to go to line 11. I don't understand that either because if you're for say like us, like, you know, like, uh, uh, uh you know, presence in other countries, nine 11 does wonders for your rhetoric. If you're opposed to us <laughs> involvement in other countries, us does or nine 11 does wonders for your, <laughs> for your rhetoric. So either way, it's yeah. like, no matter where you lean, you're going to find a wealth of knowledge of what you can share with your kids on, you know what I mean? So I, I don't worry about, I worry more about standardization than I do about well, why are kids learning about this? It's really difficult. I mean, there's hundreds of things that it's like, uh, and I'm not going to keep babbling, but when I was um, doing a grad student uh, 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 teaching internship, one of my projects that she gave me was, I want you to look at about 10 textbooks and tell me what you do and do not like about them. No way, like a, really? A, like a, yeah, and I wrote like a 15-page <sighs> essay on or whatever. So Whoa. I looked at all these right, textbooks. I have so I, many thoughts on textbooks too. So, <laughs> And it was, it was wonderful because I was going and looking up the McCarthy era, which is what I was writing my thesis on. And I was seeing what did they say about the McCarthy era. And it was either, and it was a host of, good garbage or or you know like just missing but it was really really eye-opening of, of seeing like just what they were shown and i was very critical of it but at the same time we're not gonna i don't like the bad information but the lack of information was like i, I kind of realized that we can't have a 900 page textbook you have to right. now that being said all that and i'll, and I'll show up because i want to keep like conversing all that being said um 
I do think that there are crucial periods that I would like to see. I'm not a big fan of teaching history as a way of basically from either one great man to the next great man to the next great man, because that teaches us that there are certain epochs to our American history and the in-between times are not really that important because the period of reconstruction, say, for example, when the Civil War ended to about 1910, basically from the end of the Civil War to the beginning of World War I, is probably the most important period of American history that will show us why we are at where we are now as a, a, say, like an imperialist power and stuff like that. But you're not going to learn about that period very much at all. We go from basically Lincoln, and once Lincoln dies... It's this amorphous like period of a couple of things happen, reconstruction, Jim Crow uh, uh, kind of thing, but it's really glided over and then we get boom to World War One. But that's well, such a crucial period that we just don't. Oh, yeah, you're right. That is true because, and even then, you know, there's so many people that are like, we fought the Germans twice. Like even World War One is glossed really? over. So because there's oh, so much is. to cover with World War Two and the depression and and all the things that kind of led to, gosh, you know, Joe, this is this is like my favorite stuff to talk about because, um, you know, I think. One of the things that we were talking about having you come back on is kind of talking about like, like, should history be taught? And then if it is taught, how do we teach it? So it's not a 900 page book. And then how are our different generations affected by the history they were taught in school? And that, um, and that's so tough because I don't know that there's, and I, I so since we had this discussion on like, you know, maybe some things I can talk about, I, I went and I started digging through a lot of my old texts. And, and I and unfortunately, I, I can't find very much about generational thinking as related to history because, and I'm not going to say because it's bad, but I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to like, give an idea of maybe why. Um, but in stop me as needed, I'm not going to like go on forever, but it's but it's kind of difficult. Um, when you have like, say like a, we'll just say like a boomer, for example, who grew up in a certain period, uh, they had the really formative years between like 66 to 71 or whatever they did, whenever they had the, their really formative experiences that led them into college, led their research interests, made them be like, oh my God, I'm going to be an American historian or whatever historian, right? And then they go on and they do their dissertation, they get their PhD, they get a job, they start creating like this, you know, uh, a portfolio of scholarship because they're really focused on whatever, right? Whatever the topic is. The idea that they're going to lean on their, like that generational, those formative years of that generational experience, and that that's going to, you know, propel them forward for any number of years on all the historical research and all the historical scholarship, that would, that would just not happen because they are going to be so in tune with what their research shows them of whatever period that they're, they're, you know, looking up, uh, what the facts show, how they want to report those facts. So the generational quality does not come and play as much as nearly as much as what the community that they're a member of is saying, because they're participating to a larger conversation, right? There's so many books being written about the civil war, for example, but no civil war historian is like a civil all of the civil war story they they piecemeal it out to make it much more manageable so you can get so much more information about not just like the reconstruction period but something specific about it because there's many people doing it and they're contributing to this massive historiography right but but 
I think my question is more, and I want to put a pin in that because I think there's a lot to unpack there, but, but, but I think the, the thing that I'm wondering about is not the one who goes into academia um, and wants to study history. I'm talking about the one who's been indoctrinated with, and I'm, I'm not using that term lightly. I'm, I'm, I really believe the American um, education system indoctrinates it's it's citizens in k-12 with what they teach and so i wonder if there is a difference between generations and the way that they look at um their their times their modern times or or how they live in the world because unlike um unlike uh gen z right who may or may not be learning about 9-11 their history stops when they graduate in high school and as, as did ours, right. And except for maybe you and me are a little bit different because we like history. So, but, but, and, and, and we're, and we're living in the history that Gen Z has studied. Does that make sense? I, I get elements of what you're saying. And I, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, I'm going to give you like a, let me give you a short answer and, and then we'll, we'll see where it goes okay. from there. Um, so I, I, I'm not, uh, I, I'm not taking exception, but I want to push back a little bit on, on some of the usage of our terms here and just make sure that we're really clear, kind of like on where we both sit, because I think there might be a divide here, which is going to be fun. And I really think that we should tease this and, and toy around with it a little Let's bit. Let's do it, Joe. I, Let's I do, do it. I do think there's a little bit of a, right. Why not? Right. Um, so as far as the generational thinking goes, I don't think that anybody who's like, for example, generation, um, the millennials who didn't grow up really learning that much, they weren't that exposed to 9-11. Uh, I don't agree with that. They've been extremely exposed to 9-11 and all the things that 9-11 caused and all the backlashes, all the political upheaval, the whole, like the whole, you know, period that we've just now got through with the Trump extremely kind of like neo-fascistic elements of it wasn't right, quite fascism, but it sure had a lot of freaking wafts and elements of it. Um, that's directly played out because of our, you know, foreign policy, this like extreme masculinity that comes along with it. There's all sorts, there's hundreds of elements that are directly related from 9-11 that have def- definitely impacted millennials. They, they just may not tie it directly back to 9-11, but I don't know how important that is because, you know what I mean? And I'm not trying to be flippant about the date or anything like that, no, but no, I no. don't understand what is so important about that date. I mean, not only, okay. And, and another thing he said, like uh, earlier, like, you know, when that many people died and they don't really like, they didn't understand that like that many people died and they have no way of like, you know, like contextualizing 3000 people dying a day. And you, I think you see where I'm going with this. They absolutely have been for the past year and a half now, every single day introduced to an element of thousands of Americans dying daily. So it's right. 9-11 oh, is, a mag- is a, a huge event, wow. but compared to what they've been going through for the past year and a half in their life, we never, we have never gone through anything that this generation has gone through, you know what I mean? Until yeah. now. Yeah. And so they definitely have elements that they point. can go back to and, and I, even more severe experiences than we do. And so, and I'm not, not trying to quibble, but I, I still am trying to, I'm, I'm having a hard point linking um, history with generational thinking because history transcends generational thinking of what you're trying to accomplish with it. And you might be talking a little bit more just of, of, about the, 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 uh, the inability, or not the inability, but just the downfall of, of the American education system, especially in secondary 
uh, uh, schooling. And I'm not, I don't have as much to say about that because I'm not as nearly well-versed in that. More, my is more like along the lines of, of university and academia and stuff. But I do still kind of hold fast to what I said earlier that I do think we have great teachers. The more and more we shackle them to the idea of like, here's your textbook and we need to teach the textbook, I think the worst it's going to do for us. I, I guess I'll stand fast to that. We need more critical thinking. We need more reasoning. Oh, we need 100%. more 100%. But, but gosh, you know, the, the whole idea of introducing the critical race theory um, conversations into elementary or into, into K-12, yeah. it's probably going to be more high school, let's be honest. Um, yeah. look at the backlash that that's gotten. And it's not even, it's not even about like, like people don't even really understand what critical race theory means. It's just Mm -hmm. dissecting how, um, how processes and, and laws and things have, have been created over the years and, um, to, to may or may not, that's why it's a theory, right? Like it's, it's, it's still, um, it's still something to be debated and discussed. I mean, I think it's it has, but just just plain devil's advocate may or may not have um, impeded the success of people of color in in um, and and kept them in poverty. And you know, but uh, no, I and I agree. That's, and I, that's I, something I, I, to I critically because... think about, right? That's something to criti- yeah. have a conversation about and and learn to discuss. So I totally agree with you. And when I was a teacher for 10 years, um, I was very happy to be a French teacher because I never had to teach to the test. I had tests that I had to prepare my students for, like the AP test, the international baccalaureate test. Like those are very big tests that, you know, are, are very specific. But the beauty with the international baccalaureate exam and, and that program is it's all about um, communication and how, how can you communicate in another language? It's not like, you know, fill in the blank and choose A, B or C, right? Like it's, it's write a sentence about this thought, which in all my history classes in college, that's what you did. You, I mean, I'm sure it's the same for you as a history major. Rarely was there ever a multiple choice question in history. It was always, okay, we've read the history or the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. Pick three ideas that you um, agree with or disagree with or something like that, right? Like, I mean, it wasn't when, what year was that? Well, it was both, but I I kind of identified I identify the quality. Oh, I shouldn't say that. I, I I think that teachers who who absolutely stray away from Scantron tests and 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 that kind of like thinking are doing a much better service to their students. Uh, the lower level classes. Of course they are, but there's a certain amount of Scantron tests that they have to. And here's the other part too, Joe. When you have 130 students and you have 130 exams to grade, it is a lot easier to run a Scantron through than you know, we're talking about people that are making some somewhere between 28 and 48,000 a year. I mean, these people are not getting paid the hours and hours of, of time that it takes to, to grade, um, you know, written prose. Do, do right. you know what I mean? So I see what you're saying with that, but at the same time, it's a hard job when you have that many students and especially kids that don't even give a fuck about your class. Right. So they have to take it, you know? 
Yeah, it's a, it's part of the it's exactly it's a, it's a 100 or 1000 or whatever level class. It's a part of the requirement. You're not you haven't declared yourself a history major. You just there because you have to take it. And, and, and or in high and, school, you don't you don't have a choice. You have to take that to graduate. Well, I think that well, I think with most most degrees in, in college, it's part of your breadth exams as well. Your or your your, your wide breadth courses, you're going to take a history uh, course. You're going to take a world history course. And you're going to take an American history course. Um, for for most, you know, whether it's a Getsy or whatever it is, the standards of like you know getting a, a normal bachelor's degree, you're going to take a course and it's going to be a, a lower level one. Um, maybe there's specific tracks like you know specialization like nursing or whatever where you don't, but um, so as a graduate assistant, I graded hundreds of essays uh, every other week because that was that was my job. That was that was as the assistant to the professor. I got to grade the the written prose ones and the the Scantron ones that they all did. Um, they were just ran through the machine. I I never did that. The professor just did it. I, or we might have had some undergrad assistants that did it. But for all the written stuff, I got to grade them. And you're right. It took me it took me forever to grade those exams. But the professor consider that such an important part of the class that I think that was, and I, I know you're not going to give me any pushback on this. I understand why they do scansions. I understand why they do uh, essays. I'm just saying that to your earlier question of like, you know, the multiple choice questions, some professors only did multiple choice scantrons. And I think that did a disservice to students. Some do both and some actually do their best to never do any sort of scantron. It's all written essay, even though they're making adjunct money. Um, and I, so I, I'm just a, I don't know kind of where we're going with it at this point, but I would say that the more and more we can empower teachers like you and professors and secondary and high school and junior high to make the decisions for what they teach your students, I do think it's better. Because if somebody's going to come to you and say, well, what did you teach exactly? Can you show me like your, your uh, syllabus and your, can you give me an, a, you know, let me, let me investigate your pedagogy. Uh, and they're going to what? They're going to find all the holes and all the, and all the things you could have done instead of this or you know what I mean? Like, I don't think they have the right to do that. You were, you were selected and you applied, you were, you were given the responsibility that we trust you. We trust your training. We trust what you, what you proved to us in the interview or whatever to teach the kids what we want them to learn. And then to go back later and say like, well, there's holes missing here and we're going to fill those holes in with standardization. I don't know. And so, but, but, but what are we going to come up with at the other end? Kids that know more about nine 11, but the, but the great question so what? What does that do for us as a people, I guess? What does more education about 9-11 do for us? I like, the, I like the understanding of the after effects and like the whole thing we've been going through for 20 years. I don't want that left out. But you know what I mean? Like, so I, I don't know. I guess I'm asking you at this point, what should be included and who decides that's going to be, I don't even know. That would just be some totally. government process, I guess. I don't think it's going to be good. Well, okay. So... Uh, I agree with you there. I can see why a lot of people would be so upset to learn that 9-11 isn't taught in school with more depth. Um, but like we've kind of talked about before, I can also see why or, or, or sorry, I'm going to keep going with that. Sorry for a second, um, because, uh, you know, as we've seen, um, nationalism has really come out of um the whole 9-11 thing. And, and I remember I, or I was listening to the radio this morning um, before Kamala um, Harris spoke. And I think it might've been after Bush, but I'm not sure, but it was during that memorial. And, um, and someone had said that, um, you know, it was, it was the first time 
um, you know, that didn't matter what side you were on, we were all supporting, you know, the, 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 the war or the, you know, and I went, what, who the fuck is that guy? I was out protesting in the streets and writing songs against the war in my band. Like I was like, no. And so if you're going to teach that nine 11 made America uh, one united nation against the enemy, then that's not right either. And so that's going to be the standardization though. Right, exactly. That's going to be the education. And instead of, okay, so this happened and, um, you know, and just giving very matter of factly, like I, I, my understanding of Pearl Harbor is there was a ship in Hawaii and there was this war going on and then a bomb landed on it. And, um, the president may or may not have known that it was coming and then de- decided, okay, let's go ahead and, and, and join the war. There was only about 150, not to diminish that number again, you know, it's all like relative to like what we have gone through since then. But at the time that was the biggest, um, you know, uh, it was the biggest, it was the only attack on American soil by a foreign power, except for like what, you know, Britain invading. Right, us. right. That's, but that that's was it. Way, that was yeah. the, that's the, when we entered the whole, yeah, well, we can be attacked. <laughs> yeah, we exactly. Knew. And, um, but, but I think that, um, you know, if you want to learn more about that and the effects of um, propaganda and, you know, using that as a tool to motivate into war, that can be another class that you take. I don't I, I would hate to see 9-11 and being taught in school in a way that has an agenda to continue this propensity toward um you know, hate mongering and um, trumping the the drum of, oh, didn't mean to use that word, but he was the only president that didn't show up today um, to talk about 9-11. I don't know if that tells anyone anything, but that should, that should speak volumes. Um, and and I don't know if you heard George Bush's speech, but my friend told me that it, it oh. was really good. So I, I really want to listen to it actually, because he's calling out people for being so, um, so, so um, hateful to people who want to, you know, be vaccinated or, you know, that just the separatist ideal that the last president has, has really <sighs> dug the trench. I, find that, huh? I mean, I, I mean, I, yeah. Okay. Well, that's, I mean, that's good, I guess. I find yeah, that I, know, I know. I'm like, I don't know. Uh, that could be a whole other episode, but, um, but, you know, I really want to get to um, asking this question because I think that it's, it's important um, how do, how, how does the un, unraveling or the uncovering of, of, of historical information, how does that affect how we present history? Like, like, does it ever change because you learn more and more because. Absolutely. Okay. So how does that work? Absolutely. And then, and then, and then how do, how do historians kind of go about validating what they like? It's. How do you prove, you know what I mean? Like uh, it's not math. So how do you prove that what you, what you've uncovered is a valid historical moment or do you know what I'm kind of asking? Absolutely. So, so um, (laughs) how do you, let's, let's start with the second. That's a huge question. So I'm going to put a pin in the first part because I think answering the second part might be a little bit more uh, it'll get me kind of on the right path. So, so a, a way of proving um, what you know as a historian is true 
That's the age old question. Uh, that's that's been called that. No, so basically, objectivity is what we're talking about. We we really want to write an objective history that's um, as free as possible from personal feelings or biases, ideological leanings, whatever. Right? We want to just produce what is the truest uh, uh, kind of like you know uh, version or, or or the purest narrative of what actually happened. That's what's been called in history before. Um, that noble dream. Uh, Charles Beard coined that phrase. It's the noble dream of what we all want to achieve as a historian, as producing the true narrative, right? Unfortunately, that is, that's, that's had a dramatic change in the way historians have approached that and even thought about the possibility of that since the very beginning. Now, I'm not going to give you the, I won't give you the 20 minute version, but just a quick kind of like summary of events of what happened uh, in the, in the, 1880s, uh, that's really when the profession, the American historical profession, let's just call it, being a history professor, that's when it kind of started in its current, you know, of what we consider it now. And that's these, not really uh, that long ago. No, it's, it's really, really think not. about it. I mean, wow. it's, it, it really isn't. But a lot of uh, 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 recent grads and dissertation PhDs, uh, now, you know, freshly bloomed uh, PhDs came back to the United States from Germany, and they were really getting a lot of their training in Germany. And in that time, because Germany already had an established historical profession, uh, they were learning under the, the, you know, I guess the new methodology of Leopold von Ranke and all his kind of like, you know, crew and the people who believed that what he believed, uh, which was basically empiricism uh, and just an empirical approach, empirical approach, and just telling history the way it happened, just giving the facts and only the facts, not letting any other influences guide your research. Oh man, here we go. We finally got it. They come back to the United States. They have a plan. They're getting tenure track positions at Columbia and Yale and freaking Wisconsin and all the places, right? And it's this burgeoning new profession. And it's this period of like, of what's called primitive accumulation, because they're going to really start with the United States. We're going to, it's like a collective, there's a collective mentality of what we're going to accomplish at this new field. We're finally accepted. We're kind of pushing ourselves. We are going to be accepted as a bona fide ac uh, academic profession, like, like medicine and like, you know, the sciences, like engineering. We're going to be like that now. And so they're on this, like this, just this, just mission of uncovering all the facts and they're just researching and producing the scholarship. And they're all going to come to this consensual agreement of how American history has unfolded. And that lasted for about 30 years. And that tanked extraordinarily tanked because people just started realizing that I don't agree with what you wrote. I actually went to the archives after you and I read those same documents. And what do you know? I don't, I didn't come to the same conclusions. Whoa, so there's, really? there's this disagreement because, because what are you doing? If you go to the archives and you read like this 400 letters between Jefferson and Hamilton and Jefferson and whoever, right. And you go, okay, I, I think I have this. I think I have the way that it's it's it, it was played out or whatever. I know the history and I'm going to write it up such. And I go look at the same exact documents. We could be looking at it at the same time. Is there any chance in hell that we are going to produce the same scholarship and tell people the exact same way? Because there is one way of telling it if it's the truth, right? Is there's just one way of telling it. No, but that's absurd though, because of all the influences I've had in my training or my life, my uh, mentors, the things that I've read that you haven't read and vice versa, 
we're going to produce a different uh, product. We're going to produce a different history. So what happened? So the field started to kind of like deteriorate with this like cohesion that was previously there. Um, So since then, really, the idea of becoming objective or of being objective or not being objective or basically of, of only applying yourself in like a supposedly objective manner versus others who are like, we don't have to worry about this as much has been kind of the, the lay of the field. And nowadays a history is approached in a, a really dark, uh, a, a distinctly different manner. They used to be, I like the way that this guy, Peter Novick, uh, he wrote this amazing book called that noble dream, uh, where he's talking about objectivity in history. And he says that, uh, originally like you, they, this has, group of historians set off on in a ship metaphorically speaking and the end goal their destination was the truth and they set a straight path to the truth that's how we're going to get there and that was their approach we just need to get from here to there and uncover all the information that's uh, that we need to uncover to you know say that this is the truth nowadays it's not seen as that because every single book that was published back then was kind of like the book and then there would be another the book now we don't really set the, we're not building that massive brick house anymore. Now we're just kind of like, uh, we're tacking our way. We know the same destination. We want to get to the truth. But when you write a book, Trish, that's another destination that we've made maybe 10 more miles, right? And, but with the, so we all kind of follow up behind you and you say, this is where we are now on this journey, on this map. This is where we are now. And then we come up behind you and go, great work, Trish. But as a collective, we're now reviewing your work, peer review, right? And it turns out that we're pretty close to that, but you're a little bit off the mark. You're more likely on this mark. You know, this is this is kind of where we are as a collective now, because that's what we do as historians now. We we're part of that conversation I talked about earlier. We're part of a collective conversation. I write a piece of scholarship and all my peers review it and we help come to a better understanding. I started it. I I started the conversation. And then we refine the hell out of it. And that's what a community, that's what labor historians do. That's what intellectual historians freaking, that's what the people who are looking at like the, you know, the, 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 that's what the capitalist historians were doing. That's what the geography and the, all the ones, all the ones that focus on whatever their focus is, they're part of the community and they're all determining what is true and what's not. So that's the approach. Now you, you have, um, there's, there shouldn't be this feeling of like, you know, am I being objective or not? Cause, because that kind of comes along with it. Um, um, it's kind of hard to, I guess, materialize past that point. But, uh, and lastly, there's this idea that we should be, and I kind of touched on this earlier, but this idea that we should be value free, that I shouldn't let my feelings enter into what I produce because that would somehow taint it. That's not being objective. That's being subjective. Uh, most historians at this point have completely jettisoned that belief uh, because it's, it's impossible. It's literally impossible to detach your humanness from your scholarship and what you write. Well, you're writing, you just can't do you're it. You're writing about the human experience that occurred already. So how could you not have human feeling in it? You know, you know what I mean? Like it's, I do, but, but the, yeah. the thing is that they were worried about is that they were saying, well, Trish, but if you do it that way, you're going, your scholarship is going to be tainted. You're going to no, let your I, personal I get that. feelings. I totally and get I, that. I, yeah, I'm not, I'm, because know, it's, I'm not it's, great it's totally that. different than like, um, you know, analyzing, um, you know, the formation of the earth or, um, you know, how the heart works um, because it is, 
you're and and also too, you brought up the thing about letters between Jefferson and Hamilton. Like I read a, a book in one of my history classes that was about that was from um, um, a midwife in in like the early 1700s um, wow. in in America, and um, and it's like that's that's her um, that's her memoir, but it's a but it's taught in a history class. So obviously we've we've removed that objectivity if we're if we're studying. Benjamin Franklin's autobiography or some, you know, midwife's um, biography. Right. Right. And that's a good thing because what, what that allows you to do um, it's not that there's no onus on the historian anymore to be objective. I I don't want to say that. Let me be clear about that. You still want to be objective. Um, You've got to be objective in your use of the evidence though. You can't just say whatever you want to say. Right. You have to say what the evidence allows you to prove. But that's your determination. That's the freedom you're allowed as a historian. You can be a good historian, you'd be a shit historian, right? You could be a, you know, I, I won't say names because I don't know the political leanings. I don't want to insult anybody, but believe me, there's some crap historians out there uh, who just say basically whatever they want to say because they have oh my god, you gotta you gotta say owners. who it is now. I mean, this is a podcast. Well, people that are like, you know. Dennis D'Souza or freaking like O'Reilly or something like that. They're not producing actual serious history. They're trying O'Reilly to basically. O'Reilly histo- is considered a, a historian? By people who don't really consider history uh, a, a really rigorous field of study. Absolutely. Wow. All the killing books and all the stuff like that. These, these oh, the, like a, the, what's his, what's his big one? That's the, um, the war on America or whatever his, his um, culture wars culture wars book sure absolutely see absolutely but but i mean but what it allows you to do is that you can say what the evidence allows you to say but who's going to interpret that evidence and make it make it actually produce something to say about it you are you your training is going to make that happen find something interesting to uh, uh 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 you know add into the conversation and that's what you do you read what's been said before you find out what's missing from the conversation what is not you know and that's what drives you when you're doing the reading and you're looking for a thesis as a grad student or you're looking for your next book you're working on your dissertation or whatever you're doing uh writing an article for jacobin or something like that what's missing from the conversation and what can i say about it you know that's that's the purpose so that's how you kind of like do your best to be like, well, what, how can we, how can we make sure that this is true? You can't, it's not, a, it's not a, like you said, it's not mathematics, but that's where I guess a matter of trust enters into it. Uh, and it's also a matter of who you like. Maybe you want to go and read, you know, I don't know, something by like the, the, the Rush Limbaugh history series for kids. Maybe you'll get what you want from that. <laughs> You're not going to get <laughs> is that what's a real considered... thing. Because if it's not, I, I really hope that it never is. <laughs> so I'm so dangerous. sorry to tell you. It is absolutely a freaking thing. It is absolutely a Whoa. thing. But, uh, but uh, you know, but it's not going to be respected by people who are considered serious historians. But maybe you're not looking for that either. And that's that can kind of like easily segue into, well, here's where we're at. Uh, and actually, yeah, that's exactly. not true because we've been there for a long time. But um do you remember the first part of your question? Because I, I would like to say something about it if you want me to, but that's kind of like the whole idea of, well, how do historians know what they're saying is the fact? Well, so, so the, they're doing their the, best though. The other part of that, which, and you, and I'm glad that you took it the other way because I, I really should have uh, asked it the other way, but 
I wrote it down. <laughs> I wrote it down the wrong, the wrong order. Um, right. But uh, it's how, how does new information um, change? It's wonderful. Does, does it change? And so now you have different generations learning mm. different history because you have new um, new history, I guess, being, yeah. being uncovered. Let, let me go. You ready? Yeah. That's a great freaking question. Thanks. So what you're may not be directly alluding to, but what can easily be discussed in this is the idea of like new information. Well, how do we, how do we produce new history? Uh, at the Ford theater in, in uh, DC, they have this tower um, of books that are all written on Abraham Lincoln. It's not even all the books. It's like 3000 or some odd books that really? are up this huge tower. Yeah. It's really cool. It goes from the ground floor, wow. goes up. There's a spiral staircase that goes around it. It's like, like I said, some like three or 4,000 books make up that tower, but there's actually like 17, maybe now, or 18,000 books written on Abraham Lincoln. Um, how do we keep writing books about Abraham Lincoln? What's the information that we're uncovering? It seems like every minute of every day to be, you know, to allow for a new book. Cause it can't just be written on the same stuff, right? Well, some of it is and whatever, but for the most part, no, it's a reinterpretation because the past is not changing. The past is what happened in the past happened in the past, but we have the resources available to us, whether it's primary sources in the archives, secondary sources of what's been written about, you know, whatever before, but we have access to the information. Sometimes new treasure troves open up. Somebody finds like a whole new box of letters in an, in an attic. And that's like, oh my God. And then the community goes freaking bonkers. Sometimes uh, governments have a change in political leadership and the new leadership decides to open up the archives for a limited See, time or something like that. That's the kind so of that's stuff new that's super sketchy. That's, 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 that's not, that's the part I don't like is that. Oh, but that's the part we love because before we were all just speculating and then, and then through, uh, uh, you know, when Gorbachev opened up the archives for like a year or something like that, there was such an exodus of the nexus. There was such an, a, 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 you know, a, a movement to go there. I guess it is an exodus. Maybe I'm wrong. Exodus when you're leaving, right? There was such a yeah. movement to go and get <laughs> an in those archives because it looked it opened up so much information of what actually happened as opposed to just what we think happened during the Stalinist collectivist periods and the terrors and stuff like that. Well, now we could actually go there. So that was a huge, right. you know what I mean? So that, that at Lindla, but no, no, no. I, I mean, that, that aspect is positive. Yes. But what I'm saying is it, when you have someone that is in charge of what is being allowed to be taught as history, that's what I'm saying. Like that. Yes. And then, so, so and almost done. So this is where we <laughs> can kind of get into the, I, huh? Let's say that one more time. I said, you're fine. <laughs> This is where we can kind of get into the idea of what revisionist history is, because that kind of that kind of makes its appearance on the scene now. This idea that we had a prior narrative of what happened, whatever Gordon Woods, you know, theories or on the Revolutionary War and stuff like that, or something even long ago, right? Um, Frederick Jackson Turner's frontier thesis, and then we have new. That becomes the basically standard narrative that historians believe, governments kind of like believe it becomes the standard narrative. And then later on in life, there's a revisement of that kind of history. And some people see that as a negative. Some people see that as a positive. I always see it as a positive and most historians do, because again, it's not that the past is changing. It's that 
the evidence of the past can change because of what we have access to, but it's also because new people are entering fields asking new questions that had not been asked before. And that's kind of like maybe even a generational tie-in where, well, the new breed is going to going to not ask the same questions that have already been asked because there's already been books written on that. But what are the new questions that the new people can start asking? And that's how history kind of keeps changing. It's the same in science, right? So um, what we thought was, you know, the, the, the reality of the world, um, you know, it, it, it changes based on new information. And so just, I mean, even with COVID, right, the understanding of COVID was, um, you know, a lot of people really um, put down the scientists because they're changing their mind all the time. Well, of course they are, because there was new information coming at them all the time. So they want to, they want to check what they already determined to be true. They're not, they're not done. That's exactly right. right, And and that's like history. So everything is always moving. And so if we want to, um, as, as a generation, uh, you know, as we age, I think it may be important. Maybe you could agree or disagree, but, um, I think that's a really important thing to remember moving forward as we kind of, you know, uh, move into our, our, our golden years. Um, knowing that just because what we were taught in, in the past, um, just because that's what we were taught doesn't mean that that's going to stay the same. Like there, there may be nuances and changes and, and different perspectives so that we need to continue to be like, not brittle. And, and you know what I mean? Like, what's the opposite? We need to be flexible with our thinking and in terms of, of, information being passed to us from from younger minds that are asking different questions or even people from our own generation that have that have spent 50 years studying you know i mean i'm talking about when we're old you know like 50 years studying something and they finally have this new breakthrough of like what the civil war was really about and being okay with that and being like oh yeah i always learned the thing but now i have this new information right Precisely. Uh, that nobody ever closes the book on any on any topic of history of history. I mean, nobody ever says, like, well, that's it. We finally figured out. But I totally to don't out. you think that that's totally how some people live, though, that they like- want that they absolutely they want just a standard narrative of anything of how the founding fathers came into existence and wrote the Constitution and started the nation. And that's why they don't want to I hear anything about critical theory, because it totally mm-hmm. shows that our founding fathers just might be fallible. Right now. <laughs> now you're really now you're infuriating me, you know, because no, <laughs> how dare we start questioning? And that's, right. you know, that's that's right. a big kind of like fight within the community and stuff like that. Uh, uh, but, yeah, you're 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 absolutely right. Um uh, especially if you're going into critical race theory and just the idea that, you know, just even questioning whether, you know, white people were potentially horrific towards uh, natives, blacks, uh, Americans, just every single group. Um, but that alone is just like cause for just huge, just uh, uh, fury. I mean, I mean, the, the, the fact that they I mean, the, the, the links that Texas has gone to uh, to try and shut that down is is I mean, we're at a different era now i guess I and mean, we're just pure pure um uh, uh i guess just uh, uh 
kind of pure gas into the anti-intellectual machine, you know, just as yeah. far as we can go towards never questioning any narrative and never, not only not, not only not questioning, but just never laying any sort of blame and really victimizing our whiteness. Um, if you ever kind of like even just mentioned what our ancestors did, just I don't even know what to say about that. I, I, I'm, I'm speechless. Yeah. You know, it's so funny too, because you, you know, we were kind of talking about this last night, but like um, how, um, and we're about to get a little, people are probably going to be offended. <laughs> Just a, here's, here's a warning, <laughs> spoiler alert. Um, you are probably going to be offended with this next statement, but um, you know, it, the, the Trump administration and Trump himself, you know, has, has kind of created this insane thing where the people who aren't getting vaccinated, who, who stood, you know, there being like, yeah, it's a choice and we shouldn't be, we're, I'm not putting that in my body and da la la, even though Trump's vaccinated, um, they're, they're dying off. Now what they've decided in Texas is they've gotten rid of women's, um, you know, right to an abortion within the first, you know, after six weeks, which most women don't even know they're pregnant. Um, and what does it give you? It, it gives you like, a, I think a week at most. Barely. Barely. Yeah. Barely yeah. a week. Yeah. Barely a week because you still have to go in for like a, another test. And then you have to, you know, there's like way too much, way too much that's involved. And you, you, we're, we're talking, who's this going to hit? This is going to hit people of color. So, so bear with me because I'm going to get real dirty right now. Basically what, what Texas is, is, is doing or, or what, what this like insane, I don't even know. I can't even call them right wing anymore because it's just insane is they're killing off their white um, people who are, are their supporters and they're empowering people of color to not empowering. I mean, that's a really ter terrible word, but they're, they're like, they're, they're forcing um, people of poverty and of color to have children. So what's going to happen? You're basically going to you're going to get rid of your 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 white supporters. I don't know. I, I say I don't know if that even made sense that right that like tirade that I'm going off on. But I mean, historically, no, I when you when you um, when you when you make rules on like abortion and things like that, you know, it hits people of color disproportionately. So you're basically saying, like, let's go ahead and have them populate the earth because we won't allow them to have abortions. And by the way, we really messed up because all of our white followers are are now getting dying of covid. Yeah, that's quite a paradox, isn't it? Um, <laughs> Am I the only one that sees that? Because I think it's it's insane. Like, what are you doing? Because all the all the rich elite white women are still going to have access to abortion because that's how they fucking do it. Um, and that's yeah. how it's always been done. And also, too, um, you know, the flip side could be like, well, you're you're keeping people of color in poverty and, and things like that. But um, at some point. They're, they're, well, who you know, knows what kind of draconian, uh, you know, measures are going to come if there's an influx in, in, you know, any person of color, uh, any people of color uh, birth rates. I don't think that they would react very kindly or very positively, positively towards that. Uh, towards but that, isn't it already? So, happening? I mean, if you didn't, didn't the census, this last census, just show yeah, us? But I mean, that white, even uh, the white people are like 
we're we're less than we were like uh, percentage wise, like our percentage has gone down. And I'm like, oh, yeah, here it comes. Let's go. But God, I didn't even think about the draconian laws that could be put in effect. I mean, oh, my God, that's scary. That's scary. (laughs) Sorry to scare. No, no, no. I mean, obviously, I already think about this stuff. That's just a that's a whole other level for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, on that positive note, (laughs) what else do you have? Well, I mean, yeah. we we've been uh, we we've been you know conversing for about an hour, but um, I I have to say I I definitely you know to kind of tie this up in a little bow, um, I definitely appreciate having conversations with you, Joe, about about history and how um, you know how it it is it is a um, it is the story of us, and I guess it in is. terms of someone who's interested in the story of people, obviously I'd be, I'd be drawn to history, but um, we already were talking about having you on a third time and I cannot wait to have you back. And I really do hope you come back. And, 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 and this time I'll let you just decide instead of me always asking. Well, no, that's, that's, <laughs> of course I, w- I would love to. Um, and I, I really thank you again for the opportunity. Uh, I, I just uh, quickly, I would just uh, encourage people to, uh, you know, just not be afraid of history. I would, I would hope that more people have maybe a, a small interest in it. I, I, we speak so quickly on these topics that it's really hard to get like a, a really cogent kind of argument out there for what it is that historians try to do, but it is difficult. And it's, it's not, it's, it's not a, an empirical science. It's not meant to be, you are entering into the field of the study of people uh, to better understand the past. So, and it's completely related to better understanding the past. So we can better understand why we are here in this moment. The idea for predicting the future, no, not so much, but just why we are here and give you a better understanding of maybe what we can do in the future. But um, yeah, thank you very much for allowing me to come on and just kind of like get my historical thoughts out there for maybe more people to understand and maybe maybe be attracted to the field and just uh, reading real history. It's hard to read, but it's so uh, it can be so rewarding. Thanks for listening. And if you think this is worth listening to, please subscribe, share and leave a review. Be kind to each other, listen to each other and let's stop being separated by our differences. I don't